Free. All right. Um, why don't we all stand, guys? We're going to jump into uh, Scripture this morning. Why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 2. We've been in a series going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This. If you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers. I would love to get a Bible to you. So we are finishing up chapter 2 today. And uh, before we even jump in, I'll just give you a quick like little sketch. Uh, so we will be finishing chapter 2 today. Um, then next two weeks, beginning next week, we'll begin a, just a brief little mini-series on kind of like our vision. We do this every year. It's just a way to kind of reorient ourselves as a church community. It's a, and again, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard multiple of these. Um, it shouldn't get old for you. Like I, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's always renewing to me. So hopefully it will be renewing to you to reorient your mind, your understanding, your mission. If you are new to this church, it's a really unique opportunity for you to just to know like who we are and what we're about as a church, what we feel God calling us to uh, to be uh, as a presence here on the Central Coast. And then uh, the week after that, I will actually have a good friend of mine. He will be coming in to teach. I will be on a surf trip in El Salvador. Um, and then after that, uh, we will be coming back to, I'm not joking, so you're like, wait, seriously? Nah, yes. Um, I'm really excited about it, but anyways, I'm not trying to boast or anything like that, but, and then after that, we're going to be jumping back into First uh, Peter chapter 3, and I'm really excited about this, because we're going to be looking at the subject of family relationships, husbands, wives, I'm even going to throw in a freebie in there on singleness and dating. It's not even in the text, but I'm just going to add to it. We're going to do an extra third week because I think the Bible actually has a lot to say about it, but not necessarily in First Peter. But I think it'll be incredible value and benefit to you guys. So there you go. There's the next like month and a half for y'all. So First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 20, uh, 21, and then we will jump down to verse 25, and we'll be paying attention specifically to verse 25. So let's go ahead and read it. But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, for you were straying like sheep. Verse 25. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray and then we'll sit down and we'll jump into the scripture. So Jesus, now we ask you that you would open our hearts to learn, to be transformed, to be reshaped. Um, God, to find comfort. Uh, no matter where we're at, no matter what type of circumstances we find ourselves going through, we thank you that you have just clearly outlined to us that you're a shepherd. You know, you care, you love, you cradle. And God, we pray that we would just tap into that here this morning. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So we've been looking at this book, and one of the things that we've been saying week after week is that this is a book written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' close friends, that basically was addressing um, a community of followers of Jesus that were scattered throughout the ancient Roman world, um, and they were trying to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of a incredible hostile uh, political values and ideas and ideologies and even false religions, pagan religions. They were trying to be faithful to the claims of Jesus in spite of the multiplicity of um, religious currents, political currents, and everything else. So if in any way, shape, or form what I just said sounds even faintly or remotely similar to the world you live in, it, it's because it is. It's the exact same type of world. So for many of us, we really want to be faithful to Jesus, but that creates a conflict. Because how do we do that in the midst of a culture like what we live in today? And this is one of the reasons why I think this book has incredible relevance for us. But one of the things that we discovered is that Peter tells us that as you do that, 
As you seek to press in and follow Jesus, you will find yourself in moments where suffering will become inevitable. It will just happen. Um, one of the things that we've said as well is that you really, no matter whether or not you're a Christian or not, follow Jesus or not, faithful to God or not, uh, we will encounter suffering. Suffering is inevitable in this life. Um, but one of the things that we've been describing is that there are various ways to suffer. Um, each one of us throughout life, I mean, the older we get, the more we are brought into awareness of this. Um, every human being starts out as this young infant that's, for the most part, content, happy, with the exception of, you know, needing to go to the bathroom or needing to have their diaper changed or needing to eat. But for the most part, content. But something happens throughout the progression of life. We begin to become more aware of our surroundings and our circumstances, of what we have or what we don't have. If we have a, an abusive parent, we become aware of that, becomes part of our trauma. If we don't have a present parent, we become more aware of that the older we get, and that becomes part of our trauma. To the point where we go through suffering in life, how we respond to that suffering will shape us into a variety of different types of people. We will either become you know, better, as they say, or bitter. It's one of the reasons why you can have some people at the end of their life, they're cantankerous, they're angry, they're bitter, they're frustrated. They're just always just looking for something to complain about. And then you have others that have gone through similar types of suffering and they're soft and gentle and kind and, you know, welcoming and loving and warm. And they have this like depth of wisdom. How is that possible? And, and the answer to that is, is one suffered well, one didn't suffer well. And I want to be really careful about this. Just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to suffer well. We have choices in this. We have decisions. How we are going to press into God, trust him, look to him, tether ourselves or anchor ourselves to the historic Christian faith or not. To either trust what scripture teaches or to distrust what scripture teaches. And so this is one of the reasons why we as a church, we just, we try as we come together to like look at the ancient historic biblical text, and just say, what does these writers have to say to us that is valued and worthy in wisdom that allows us to be able to re-anchor, recenter our lives so that we're not adrift, so that we are not simply free-falling throughout life, or since we're not having to somehow endlessly recreate a path forward that at some point uh, fails or just drops us off at some dead end. And scripture actually speaks to all of these areas. And this is what we've been saying is that Peter wants to reconnect his readers to this historic reality of a God that loves them and cares for them by basically reconnecting us to the ancient historical text. So what I want to say real quick as we look at this is he describes that suffering well actually happens when we anchor ourselves into an awareness of who God is, his favor. And what we've been looking at the past several weeks is that when we become aware, secondly, of Jesus as our example, he describes Jesus as being the exemplar of our faith. And then he describes, like we saw last week or a couple weeks ago, we look at the subject matter of Jesus being our sacrifice, the one who steps in and gives himself for us. Today, we'll be taking a look at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, where he describes Jesus as being the shepherd. So to the degree that we understand and see Jesus as our shepherd, this actually, according to Peter, which will make some observations as to why, why this matters. Like Peter realizes your level of suffering well will be dependent upon how well you and I pay attention to the degree that Jesus is our shepherd and the overseer. And this becomes, I think, really rich and meaningful to you and I this morning. So I want to just take a look at the passage we just read. I'll just 
kind of move it into three different movements. So next slide. We'll take a look at three specific things. We'll look at, number one, the fact of straying. Secondly, we'll take a look at the fact of returning. And then lastly, we'll take a look at the, uh, the nouns that he uses to describe uh, who Jesus is, the shepherd and the overseer of your soul, which is the, literally the Greek word psyche. Your psychological well-being, psyche, is going to be dependent upon how tethered you are to the awareness that Jesus is your shepherd and overseer. We'll get to that in just a moment. So first of all, I'll jump in and take a look at the movement of straying. What does it mean by you are straying? For you were once like straying sheep. So the word that he uses here uh, is just simply one that has kind of moved away from a center position. You've strayed, like literally gone off astray. Um, think about a child that might just kind of wander. Um, there's that song that we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I take my heart, O Lord, and seal it, seal it for your courts above. The big idea is that as human beings, and again, this is not just simply an adult problem. This is even a child problem. I have a recollection of a camping trip that I had done with some friends of ours. And I don't know, their son was maybe like two years old at the time. And I remember the son, we were at Plaskett Creek up in, you know, Big Sur area. And the child began to kind of walk away. And the, the dad says, now I want you to stop. And the kid stops. He's like, you know, 10 feet off in the front and kind of stops and looking out. You can tell he's looking at something. Dad didn't see exactly what he was looking at. And then he just tells him, stop, come on back. And the kid just stopped and didn't want to come back. And instead, he just kind of stands there as doing what, you know, I oftentimes do, which is ignore. Like, like, maybe he's deaf. Maybe he can't hear. No, he just does not want to be seen as being able to hear what dad had just said. And then the kid just continues to walk forward, and then, lo and behold, there's a, there's a dog, and that's, that's what captivated him. And the dog apparently was on a leash, but uh, anyways, the dog lends it. The child did not bite him, so the story does end well. Um, and everything, the kid literally gets freaked out, runs back to dad. I think that's a great picture of just, like, how oftentimes you and I are. Like, we get enticed by things. That's why we wander. We get enticed by something. Something grabs our eye, our attention. Uh, and we begin to move away. Our desires become alive for something that is beyond maybe in the next camp over. And God says, no, don't go, go that route. Um, and God, God obviously knows. But again, we, we end up as adult children, if you want to think of it that way. We tend to claim that we think we know better than God. And so we make these decisions that oftentimes lead us astray. And this is exactly the language that he's using here. That all of us, all of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. And the language that he uses here with regard to like sheep, he's going to tie into the language that he describes of Jesus being the shepherd. Um, but this is familiar common language throughout the Bible. So, for example, Psalm 119, Isaiah 53, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23. All of these are really key passages that describe the people of Israel like sheep. Sheep that belong to God's pasture or belong to God's sheepfold. God cares for them. God loves them. And yet those sheep can run astray. They can become vulnerable. And again, if you know anything about sheep, which, you know, again, I'm not like an expert or anything, but I've, I've been around uh, enough over my life to just realize, you know, they, they do have teeth, but they're not for like devouring. I mean, though they can too, but the point of the matter is they're, they're not, um, I don't even know what the right word they use. They're not going to go out and like kill and slaughter some other animal. That's just not what sheep do. Um, it's not necessarily for offensive. And so sheep, for the most part, are extremely vulnerable. And sheep, you know, they often have described them as not being very smart, meaning it's very easy for sheep to just follow other sheep. Um, like, what's the decision-making process that goes on through a, a, a sheep's mind? 
Um, any sheep psychologists here right now that can help us? No. But the point that I would make is I think for the most part, sheep just kind of follow other sheep. They just follow the pack or whatever it's called, you know, sheepfold or whatever it's called. But the point of the matter is there's a tendency for sheep to go astray. When they do, they become extremely vulnerable. It's why it's an apt description like you and I. We tend to think, I think a lot of times in our arrogance or uh, in our bravado, that we know more than God and that we are way more stronger than what we truly are. And, and yet, sometimes we face crisis where we don't know how to respond to it. We retreat. We, we run somewhere. And the question is, where do we run? Many of us, obviously, by, by nature, we are prone, like it says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So we just run. We distract ourselves. We turn away. Um, but the invitation from God is to, to run to him because he will be the one that will be able to bring corrective and strength and healing and wholeness and protection. So first of all, we see this idea of uh, straying like sheep. Secondly, I want to look at the little next phrase where he describes, but you have returned or in this state or this process of returning. Uh, this is an interesting word that gets used quite a bit throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you some examples of how this particular word is used, and it will give us a little bit of definition to help us understand why this word's so significant. A close word to this is the word repentance, which I'll read a quote about this in just a moment. But this, listen to how this plays out in the New Testament. So, for example, uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 12 says this, um, they should turn and be forgiven. So the idea is, as they turn... They will be forgiven. Their whatever offense or defilement, whatever it is, will be uh, canceled or removed. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So in this context, the idea of turning is from those worthless forms of worship and giving ourselves to. Now, um, I'd be willing to bet that not one of you woke up this morning and you turned to this little golden statue in your house and just began to offer incense burning on it to it. Am I, am I right there? Anybody? Um, but so we, we, again, it's, it's kind of an archaic form of like worship. We don't do that in our modern world, but we do all have like these little guys that we turn to every day and multiple times throughout the day for our little fix, our like little, like, you know, like, oh, how many likes did I get on that photo? How many comments did I get? Those like little fixes are things that we turn to. It's kind of like a daily liturgy where we worship and devote ourselves over to something or at least distract ourselves from the pain and the anguish and the sorrow and all the other stuff that we're going through in life. And the point is, is that he says, you as Thessalonian believers, you've turned to God from these alternative things. It doesn't mean you got to throw away your phone. It just means that we put everything in perspective. You get the idea. That's my big point. He's saying you turn to this God from those idols and now you are serving the true and living God. So it's about reorientation, reorienting our lives from being around and focused upon these other lesser things, lesser entities, lesser deities, gods, lowercase g, to the true and living God who gives himself for us, who loves us. And in 2 Corinthians, uh, or, uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, uh, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So in this context, the idea of turning uh, gives this picture that we move from a state of, of ignorance to a state of, of enlightenment, of learning, discovering who God is. So some of you might be like, how do I get to know more about God? You do this, not just by simply going to a Bible study. That can be helpful. But it's by a continual practice, cadence in your life. Like uh, Joseph was describing, this daily 
uh, invitation to read scripture. It doesn't mean that you're always going to get scripture reading and make sense to you all the time, but you engage in this daily practice. Even when you don't fully comprehend or understand, you engage with the practice. It's this state of turning, and in the state of turning, uh, the state of ignorance is transformed into a state of enlightenment. You begin to learn and grow. The veil is removed is the way that the Apostle Paul describes it. So take a look at uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 18. It says, They turned from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness for their sins. So in this context, the idea of turning is turning from this, this power source of darkness. You guys all agree there is a source or power of darkness in our world today. You guys seen it? Have you felt it? Have you noticed it? When was the last time it confronted you? It's real. It's there. It may be intangible in most ways, but it's there. The question is, how are we engaging it? Are we engaging it with the same powers of darkness? Then we've been overcome by it. The New Testament's way of saying engagement with darkness is actually not engagement with darkness. It's turning away from darkness, turning to God, who then gives us power over the darkness, to overcome that darkness. And James chapter 5, verse 19 says, Brothers, uh, if any one among you wanders from the truth, help them return. So he describes, as you are brought into this family of God's people, we all have an obligation. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, we all have an obligation. Not like a duty in a sense of like heavy, burdensome duty, but this joy of knowing. If we know people in our lives that have been overcome, that have wandered from God or wandered from the path of God, we have a unique opportunity to bring them back into the truth. Now, the word truth there, I had actually uh, put the uppercase T in there because I wanted you to understand, truth is not necessarily a body of facts and data. In the New Testament mindset, in the Jewish mindset, the truth that is being referred to here is a person. Jesus. Return to the truth. If we know people, again, if you have friends in your life that kind of their idea or concept or certain theological ideas, now that, that, that can be not good, but the big idea is Jesus. Jesus. Wander from the truth to help turn them is, he describes, part of the role. So the big idea that he wants us to see here is that there's this process of returning. Now, again, like I said, a lot of this is very similar to the word that gets utilized in the New Testament for the word repent. And I don't know about you, but if you've been brought up in a Christian context, maybe where the word repentance has been weaponized, right? You hear people like, um, you know, repent, or you see someone standing, you know, downtown farmer's market with a big sign that says, repent, you know, you're going to be going to hell kind of a thing. That to me is, is a perfect example of weaponizing an absolutely beautiful word. The, the word repent basically just simply means to turn from these ways that are destructive to the living God. It's actually a word that brings incredible freedom and newness of hope. C.S. Lewis would describe repentance like this. He said, repentance means unlearning of all of the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into all our lives. It means killing a part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. Now, before you cast them off as being morbid, the point of the matter is, I think C.S. Lewis is describing, is that all of us, we've got, and I think, look, if you were to remove this concept right here from any religious idea. Each one of us, I would say that we have habits that we engage in every single day throughout our lives that we wish we didn't engage in. Do you agree with that? Maybe there's like patterns of eating or patterns of drinking too much alcohol or whatever. 
binging too much Netflix or whatever the case is, we all can look at there are habits in our lives that we wish were different. So we all understand what it means to like reorient our lives around something, killing something, killing bad habits, killing bad eating habits, killing bad laziness habits, killing bad drinking habits. Um, because we know if we don't, those habits will continue to thrive and live and be cultivated and then end up like a, like a virus crush and destroy and devour us or the relationships that we're involved in. And what he's saying here is that repentance is basically unlearning self-conceit and self-will because that is the opposite of what it means to declare Jesus is Lord. What it means to say Jesus is Lord is to say I'm not. I'm not king. I'm not the final arbitrator making decisions over my life. Do I have the ability to make decisions? Absolutely. But what I do as a follower of Jesus, I synchronize my decision-making processes with Jesus's and say, God, what do you want for me in my life? How do you want me to think about my money or my time? What church do you want me to engage in and be involved in? Or do you want me, Lord, to step out and be involved in a Bible study or to lead a Bible study or, or get involved in church or to serve? Or how, how do you want me to use my life? And however he determines that, then we, by his strength, say, then I will align myself with whatever that is. As difficult as that may be, I know that there will be a source of uh, 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 power that will be available to me as I step into this obedience. Lastly, I'm going to take a look at this idea of shepherd and overseer, and I'm done. So I'm going to look, first of all, at the word overseer, and then I'll go back to the word shepherd, and we'll final, final, uh, bring about some final thoughts on this whole thing. The word overseer that he uses here is the word uh, episkopos. Um, it's a word that he's actually going to use later on in the book where he describes, we get the English word actually bishop from. In fact, um, you guys are familiar with this word, right? Do you know this actual word is in the name of our city? There, there's this dude named St. Louis. He was a bishop. <laughs> and this city was named after him, San Luis Obispo. The word obispo literally comes from the word episkopos. It's the exact same word, bishop. Um, it means overseer. It means someone who is like a guardian. And the big idea is the, a bishop. You know, we, we tend to think of a bishop in terms of a Roman Catholic or a Greek Orthodox context. But it just simply means a guardian, an overseer. And this is the language that's actually given to Jesus. He is a bishop. He is an overseer. He is a guardian over our souls. And uh, this is what he wants first to understand. Now, again, I mentioned earlier the word psyche, the word soul. Um, think about how you are wired and how you think. Think about so many areas in your life where you may find yourself overwhelmed. Where does anxiety oftentimes reside? It's in your psyche. How are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? How are you responding to it? There's a lot of different ways in which, in the midst of suffering, the way suffering oftentimes affects or impacts our psyche, our understanding of life and how we deal with it. And there's a variety of ways in which we can choose to deal with it. There's all sorts of religious and philosophical ways. And even in more modern terms, there are, you know, medicinal and scientific ways in which we deal with this. Um, you know, there's different variety of things that we can do to somehow deal with it. But what I think is being suggested here is that if we hear what the writer to this community of Jesus followers is trying to say to us, is that Jesus cares about us. And as we recognize who he is, uh, he will impact and reform and re shape our own psyche, our own understanding of life, and it will bring some order into the disorder of those other parts of our lives. And then secondly, I want to jump in and wrap up with this idea of shepherd. The Greek word that he uses here is poimon. It's kind of similar to the word poem. 
poemon. The, the idea is, uh, you think of a poem. A poem is basically the, the, the construction of words, and it's not just random. That's, that's the thing about a poem. A poem is not just somebody, you know, verbalizing, spewing out words left and right. It's, you know, it's, it's cre- crafting, creating, taking certain choice words and crafting them together to say something in a condensed form that's absolutely filled with beauty. Um, it's bringing order out of disorder. And this idea of a shepherd is a common phrase throughout the Old and New Testament to describe who God is. Next slide. Um, like, take a look at a couple of these passages in chapter 9, verse uh, 36 of the book of Matthew. It says, Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm going to show you an image right now. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, if you've ever seen this before. Um, but these are three images that are taken from um, year 100 A.D., circa, uh, then 250 or so A.D., Circa, and then around 300 A.D., so 2nd century all the way to like the 4th century. These images have been found in what's commonly known as catacombs. Catacombs were basically places where they would bury uh, the dead, um, and this is where the church actually met. Um, they met in catacombs. And the, the art of the day, this, the, one of the number one depictions of Jesus was, was this. I don't know if you knew this or not. I, iconography is really important. Um, symbols is really important. Symbols tell us a lot about how people view things. I mean, think about the symbols that you and I have today established in our, in our world. Um, we have lots of symbols that we look at and we think about. Uh, the early church also had symbols. The predominant symbol that they had for Jesus was someone carrying animals, a shepherd. Jesus, the shepherd. This image is so rich because this is the picture that throughout the entire Bible God wants to be seen as, as a shepherd. Now, I don't know how you think about God. I I don't even know if your understanding of God squares with this. And I would suggest to you, as humbly as I can, if your vision, your understanding of God does not square with a shepherd carrying sheep, then I invite you to let go of whatever false form, false image that you've had and adopt what Scripture has. What, what that means today, for you, today could be a new day, a whole new day, because it reformats, reshapes everything about your life and the landscape of your life. So I want to finish with just a question, is this. What does the shepherd God image offer those that are suffering? In other words, why would Peter, in writing to a community of people that are suffering, why would he tell them, hey, you guys were once wandering, now you've returned, and this shepherd God is now taking care of you. I think at least three things, and uh, I think they actually come from the book of Hebrews, and I want to read this little passage to you that, again, ideas like this would have been circulated and thought throughout. So listen to what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21, I'm almost done. It says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the everlasting covenant, which raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd, equip you with every good for doing his will, and may work in us what is pleasing in him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I think basically in closing, there's three things that this scripture tells us that kind of helps inform our understanding as to why an understanding of God being a shepherd God can radically reshape how we suffer. Number one is 
it reminds us of this everlasting covenant that God has with us. What I want to say to you is that no matter what type of suffering you may be going through right now, uh, grief, hardship, loss, um, what we often can just simply call 2020, (laughs) um, whatever type it comes in, whatever package it comes in, I want you to just know right now, it is not eternal. Do you understand that? It is not eternal. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, one day throughout eternity, in the presence of God, that very suffering that you have gone through or are presently going through or one day, cheer up, will go through, <laughs> will be nothing more than a footnote in eternity. It is not eternal. What is? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us God's covenant is, which means his love, his acceptance, or to use another language, another word to describe it, the idea of coming home. That home, that place of acceptance, that place where no matter what type of life we've lived, no matter how broken we've been, no matter how despairing or despicable or defiled, no matter how far we've gone or wandered, there's always this place that we can just simply come back to and it's home, that covenant. Secondly, we see that there's an equipping for every good work throughout our life. Um, God gives us everything that we need. So he tells us that there is this equipping for every good to be done. means that the very suffering that has come upon your life does not have to have the final word of definition over you. God can use that to remake you into somebody different. Then that becomes a, a tool for good. Lastly, it reminds us of this incredible eternal weight of glory. Listen to the last little line, and I'm done here. He says, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And the big idea is that Jesus will be given ultimate, infinite, forever, eternal weight of glory. Or if you are unfamiliar with the idea of glory, the idea of commendation, of reference, of love, of affection. God showers his love and affection upon Jesus. But here's the good thing. If you are in Jesus, all that comes to Jesus also comes to you. That means that God looks at you in Jesus and says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'll carry you. This suffering, this pain, this moment, this trauma, as you trust me, I have the power because I've overcome our greatest enemy, death, to to take that Horrible thing that was intended to bring about your devastation, your destruction by the enemy, by the evil one, by the darkness that's there. And I will turn it around for good so that it will not define you. You get to define it by my power. And that idea of this eternal way to glory is phenomenal. And I want to finish with a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I'll just be done. In fact, I'm going to have Mikey come on up, and he'll close us in a song of worship, and we will partake of communion together, and we will be done. In fact, if you are parents and you would like to bring your kiddos in for communion, you're more than welcome to. Um, I'll just read this, and then you can come back in, and we will partake of communion together as we sing this last song. C.S. Lewis says this. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves, this is a line I just want you to think about, all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so, that someday, God willing, we shall 
get in. The image that C.S. Lewis wants for us to understand and see is that even though presently and at this present moment, suffering may be a part of our landscape, it will not always be so. There's this passage in the book of Revelation where it says, God will one day wipe away every tear from our eye and we will be part of his new creation of all things being transformed and remade. This is why I think it's so important for us to see what voice, what shepherd, what master, what overseer, what guardian are we giving our attention to? Not all guardians lead to the same end. Not all shepherds lead to the same path, destination. 